Good morning. Uh, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. Might take you some time to find Ezekiel. It's in the Old Testament. We'll give you that clue. It's after Isaiah, after Jeremiah, somewhere in the middle-ish part of your Bible. So we're going to do a series on Ezekiel to start uh, this new year. Uh, Ezekiel is 48 chapters, which at a chapter a week would take us a whole year. We're going to take about three months to look at Ezekiel. So we'll be uh, not walking through the entire book, but just looking at some of the highlights uh, and lowlights, as it may be, of Ezekiel. Just this awesome uh, prophetic book. And let me just briefly tell you why we're doing Ezekiel. As as we think about new series, um, I always... Oh, Bob. Good to see your face. Sorry. That was just too good. Um, uh, I always look back at what we've done, and I've I've been teaching here for 10 years, and uh, in 10 years, we have never covered a major prophet. Um, So that's a pretty big gap in the biblical story, so I thought it was time to do that. But, But more... The picture of God that we encounter in Ezekiel is just so great and awesome, and, and I just thought it'd be a great way to start a new year with a, a refreshed vision of who our God is. So I'm going to read just the first three verses and give you a little bit of context, and then you'll hear the rest of the, of the chapter read in just a second. So this is Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, In the 30th year, or maybe in my 30th year, this might be Ezekiel's turning 30, uh, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. All right, so just quick context. We'll be filling this context in as we go on throughout the weeks. Uh, the year is 593 B.C., okay? It's almost 600 years before Christ. The location is the Kabar River, which is probably more like a canal, an irrigation system, part of the Euphrates River in ancient Babylon, all right? So let me give you a little, um, a little map here. Uh, of the ancient Near East, I've got my trusty pointer here, all right? Here's the Mediterranean up here, right? There's Egypt down here, and then you have big uh, uh, empires like Babylon and Assyria. Um, there's my little uh, Israel, okay? So this is taking place over here somewhere in Babylon by the Euphrates River. Quick review of ancient Israeli history. Of course, you know that about, gosh, about a thousand years before Ezekiel, uh, The Israelites were a group of people, a group of slaves in Egypt, right? And under Moses, uh, God led them out of slavery in Egypt, and they spent about 40 years wandering in the desert of Sinai, and then finally came up on the eastern side of the promised land, and through Joshua, they entered into the promised land. Uh, They conquered the peoples there. It took them a couple hundred years to kind of actually gain power in that area, and they finally consolidated as a monarchy, first with King Saul, and then with the greatest king and the greatest king's name, King David of Israel, of course, right? And and, uh, that was about 1,000 B.C., um, and, and the time of King David marks the golden age in Israel's history. Okay? It's, the, it's the best. It's the best times they had. Well, after David died, pretty quickly, things started to slowly decline. 
And you had a group of people who stopped obeying God's laws. Um, They started pursuing idols, um, the other gods of the cultures around them. Uh, They started worshiping those idols. They didn't observe God's Sabbath. They weren't caring for the poor. They weren't promoting justice uh, within their nation. And through a series of prophets, God said, if you guys do not repent, if you don't turn from your disobedience, I'm going to bring in foreign invaders. They will come in, they will conquer you, and I will take you out of the promised land. Um, you're, you staying here is, is dependent on you, this covenant that we've entered into, and, and you obeying me. Well, hundreds of years passed, and the people continued to disobey, and so finally God did what he promised. And about five years before verse 1 happened, uh, the Babylonians came through under King Nebuchadnezzar. Most of you know that name. They came through, and Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, the holy city, God's holy city, and they carried off a group of Jews, and they carried them off and deported them into exile in Babylon, okay? So Ezekiel is one of those Jews uh, living in exile, conquered people. Uh, They're probably, they might be in some kind of slave camp. We don't totally know what their lives look like, but he was 25-ish when this happened, and um, he is now living in exile, and they're dealing with all that comes from that, the the confusion, the, the, the trauma of being conquered, of being slaves, wondering where God is, why am I still holding this? Um, what's going on, disillusioned, confused, um, trying to figure this out. And so um, here's Ezekiel as this guy living among them. And they think they've hit rock bottom, okay? But the truth is they have not yet hit rock bottom. About five years after verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar is going to sweep through again, and this time he's going to utterly destroy Jerusalem. Not just conquer, but destroy it. Temple, demolished, city walls, torn down. God's holy city, Mount Zion, completely obliterated. And that's five years uh, to come. And so here you have this group of people uh, living in, in between rock bottom and really rock bottom. And God appears to Ezekiel in this place. He was, a, he was the son of a priest. He was tr- being trained to be a priest, expected to be a priest, and then his whole world got shattered when he got taken from his home, taken into a foreign land, and, um, and, and God appears. And the truth is, is what the people needed <laughs> more than anything was a fresh vision of God. <laughs> they needed to know who God was, that God still was, Uh, Ezekiel needed that. And I would argue whatever our situation is, on on the front of a new year, we need the same thing. We need a fresh vision of who our God is. And that's what God gives Ezekiel on the 30th year and the fourth month of the fifth day by the Kabar River. And so we're going to read this vision that God gives Ezekiel. And I'm going to have Kim Storm, a.k.a. the voice of God, come up to read... (laughs) But what I want to do, he's not going to read the whole chapter. He's going to read portions of the chapter. I, I would, I, when, when it starts, I'd like you to close your eyes today um, because I'd like you to try to enter in imaginatively to what Ezekiel might have possibly experienced, all right? Um, so I think it'll be easier to not try to read it. Plus, he'll be skipping, so you'll have a hard time following. Um, but just try to imagine being in exile, being a slave, and then encountering 
the living God. So if you would, just close your eyes and listen to chapter one of Ezekiel. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished brass. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had hands of men. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, and they did not turn when they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had a face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covered its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice, awesome. Under their expanse, the wings were stretched out, one toward another, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their head was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that form, what appeared to be his waist up, and he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire, and a brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. Thanks. How was that? Isn't that wild? I love it. Forgive me this oft-used quote from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. My young girls are just immersed in this book right now. Uh, you got these four children who enter into this land of Narnia, and they encounter these two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are describing Aslan, who is the, the Christ figure. 
Uh, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I, I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver's telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Love that. Love that picture of God. And I think as I, as I think of this vision of Ezekiel, the word that comes to mind is just the word wild. <laughs> this picture of this God who is not tame, who is not safe, but who is good, who is in fact pure goodness. But there's something a little scary about pure goodness. And as we start a new year, I, I want us to be considering, who are we talking about when we talk about the God of the universe? This, this wild God who isn't safe, who isn't tame, but is good. And, and I, I, I'm speaking into what I would consider an, an interesting cultural moment in the American church. And this is just me talking here, but I feel like we're in a, in a moment where the, 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 the American church has lost its sense of the wildness of God. Uh, there's a book that came out recently, and I read a book review on it. The title of the book is Yawning at Tigers. And I love that title. It's this idea of, you know, obviously that there's these, these beasts, these tigers, but people are now just yawning at something that they should be amazed by. And the, the argument is that the, the American church is, is suffering from a very weak, a very tame uh, vision of God. And this is how I think this has happened. In our, our, this is just me talking here in our, in our country. I think there's a min minority group of people who call themselves Christians who are still preaching hellfire and brimstone, okay? You got, these are the people that are at rallies with signs that are saying the kinds of people that God hates, you know, the people that are still on the megaphones. And that's out there. And the rest of the American church has said, we do not want to be associated this, with those people at all. And so what we've done is we've kind of swung the other way of the, the pendulum and tried to create this God that is this gentler and kinder. I think we kind of feel like we have to do PR for God in our country, okay? So you've got these passages about God's anger and his judgment, and we, we're trying to find new ways to explain that, ways the church has never explained those passages. But we're, we're trying to create a God that is more suitable to the contemporary palate, if I can say it that way. Um, let me quote from the book. Nobody today seems to think that God is dangerous. And that is itself a dangerous oversight. It's dangerous because before we yawn at God, we must first replace the majestic, holy, awesome tiger of scripture with the domesticated kitten conformed to the standards of the world measured by the yardstick of political correctness. Who wants a God who roars, who threatens, who judges? Why not rather fashion a God in our taste, a friendly God we can pet, leash, and export for popular appeal? And I was just thinking, um, you know, what are the gods that we're fashioning? What, what, what are these images of gods that, that we're fashioning in our culture? And I, here, here's a, a couple that I, I see out, the God of our own making, um, that I see popular in the church today. One is kind of the divine therapist, 
right? Um, God is there to, um, to comfort our anxieties. When people are anxious and stressed and fearful, God is the one who comes. He's kind of like the greatest therapist. Um, and there's a, there's a piece of all these that is very true. But that's kind of what he is. Um, the vending machine God, of course, right? You, you put the quarter in the machine, you get the product you're looking for. Um, he is, you know, you, you input some obedience, you input some service, and God is supposed to bless your life. Or just kind of the cosmic wingman. God is God's my buddy. Um, God is the guy who's always there. Um, and uh, again, truths, there are parts of these that are, that are true about who God is. But a, a God who's going to cozy up um, to the ways that we want to live our lives in America, essentially. A, a God that has lost his claws, that has, has been defanged a bit um, to, to meet our sensibilities. And the, the article I was reading said, here's the irony in this. In trying to create a God that is relevant to our culture, um, we're actually bored with the God we've created. That that we've grown bored with this God of our own making. That when you think about, when Christians think about what gets them actually excited about life, what gets them uh, feeling thrilled about things, it is not God. It's, it's the football game that's going to be on later tonight. That's what really gets my heart excited. Or it's the next episode of my favorite show. It's, it's the, the, the latest upgrade on my, my phone. You know, whatever, whatever it is. Those are the things that thrill my heart. We've grown bored with God. The God that we've made, ironically. And the article goes on, he says, when we get bored with God, that's going to cost us a lot of things. Let me just mention three of them that are mentioned in the article. Um, boredom with God costs us our worship, okay? When you lose sight of the grandeur, the wildness of God, you enter into a church on Sunday and you sing songs, but your heart is not there. You're distracted. You're just kind of looking around watching, right? There, the authentic worship is, isn't taking place because you've lost that sense of the wildness of God. Um, the boredom of God costs us our purity. Um, if God is not this holy, awesome person, maybe it doesn't matter that much um, the kinds of things I take in with my eyes, the kinds of words that come out of my mouth. Maybe it doesn't matter that much um, how I live. Um, he's he's, he's going to be my therapist. I can just come to him and you know, he'll make me feel better. Uh, and ultimately, boredom with God costs us our mission. Um, if I don't see God as this, this God who one day will come, um, if I think, you know, maybe in the end, God just, maybe he just kind of gives everyone a pass in the end. Maybe that's how it works. Um, we will, it will cost us our mission. And, and I think as much as sometimes we, we tailor a God that we want to make, in everyone's heart of hearts, we want God to be wild. We want a God that is out of our country. We want a God that we can't fully comprehend, that, is, that has his own will apart from ours. Well, I can promise you this. Um, the God of Ezekiel will not bore you in the next three months. Um, he might offend you occasionally. He will certainly confuse you some. He will thrill you, but um, he will not bore you. And so I thought it's a great place to start to just walk through this passage a little bit and just consider the wildness of this God that, that we serve, that we believe in. And so I'm just going to walk um, through a couple of the images, um, and then we'll be done. And, and my, the whole goal is just simply to, to present God to us again in a, in a fresh way. And um, there's so much in this passage that 
maybe demands explanation. And I'm going to resist trying to explain all this as if I have a clue of what all this means. Um, so I'm not going to try to put this in the box. I'm, I want us to just enter into it um, imaginatively and consider, gosh, who is our God? All right? You up for that? Okay. And I'll go pretty quick. So I see three, three main images uh, in this in this. Uh, passage, the last one being the image of God himself. So the first image is the image of a storm, right? Look at verse four. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. All right, so I want you to, it's a windstorm. So picture, you know, the Santa Ana's blowing as hard as they ever do, but say, picture them coming off of the, off the, off the, uh, the ocean and this, this storm front, just the biggest, baddest storm front you've seen, this dark cloud, and it's just sort of uh, crackling with electricity, okay? It, there's, there's lightning crackling. You're hearing the, the thunder. You've got this, this big storm coming. And let me just tell you, this is not a new image for God, okay? Throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, oftentimes when God shows up, he shows up in a storm cloud, uh, probably most famously um, from Exodus 19, when God rescues Israel from, from slavery and they come to Mount Sinai. And, and what he tells Moses, he says, I want you to gather the people around the mountain and they're going to ask them to consecrate themselves and we're going to meet together, okay? Make sure nobody touches the mountain. <laughs> nobody touches them. And, and I don't think anyone would have been that tempted to touch the mountain when they saw what happened. And then this storm cloud descends at the top of this mountain. And there's lightning, there's um, like the blast of a trumpet. And then the voice of the Almighty speaks and he speaks the 10 commandments to the people from this storm cloud. And I don't know if you remember how the chapter ends, but after all this happens, the people say to Moses, and I quote, speak to us yourself and we'll listen to you, Moses, but do not have God speak to us again or we will die. Okay, we, we're, we're happy to hear from you, Moses. You give us God's words. This is a, this is a little overwhelming for us. Or I think of Job. Um, you know the story of Job, this man who had everything taken away from him. And you have 37 chapters of, of uh, him and his friends discussing, why has this happened? God, where are you? Why would you do this? And then finally in chapter 38, God actually shows up. And it says, then the Lord answered Job, out of a storm. He shows up in a storm with these words. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me, Job. So the storm, this storm God is not a new concept in scripture. But I think of a storm, I think of power, I think of transcendence, I think of, of uh, wildness, unpredictability. And certainly, I would be wondering, if I'm by the Kabar River and a storm is coming, we're certainly wondering, what, what is this storm going to bring? Is it going to bring judgment? Uh, is it going to bring salvation? The answer will be both. <laughs> yes, judgment. Yes, ultimate hope and salvation. But it leaves you wondering what, what's coming. So that's the first image, the storm. The next image, really the one he spends the longest with, and we actually skipped part of this because it was so lengthy, are these four living creatures. And I don't know about you if you could, this is probably the hardest thing to imagine in your mind. So I'm going to give you a second shot at imagining these creatures. They begin in uh, verse 5. Um, 
it says that they have some sort of, their, their form is like a human form. Ezekiel uses the word like a lot in this chapter. It was like a rainbow. It was like wings. It was like all that. Say language is kind of breaking down here, but it was kind of like something you know in your experience. But they have kind of a, a human form. Uh, picture this. They have four wings. The top two are, are spread out, flying, and the, they're touching each other's wings, and the bottom two are, are wrapped around their bodies, and when, they, when the wings beat, it says it was like the sound of, a, of rushing water, like the sound of a great army. Um, they've got straight legs, they've got um, like bronze feet of a calf, and then they have these four faces, which was interesting. The f- front face was the face of a man. Uh, uh, to the right is the face of a lion. To the left, the face of an ox, and then I'm assuming in the back, the face of an eagle, um, I'm not sure what is all meant by that. I, I think of those creatures, and I would argue that each one of those is, is the king of their respective field, okay? So lion, the king of the wild beasts. The ox would be the king of the domesticated livestock. The eagle, of course, the, the king of the air. Man, the king of, of creation. So the, the, the best of, of all of God's creation uh, is present in these creatures, and maybe what they're announcing is that the king of all creation is, is, is arriving. Not quite sure, possible. Uh, it says, now, so you've got that. Now, pictures together, their presence was like fire, and fire is moving back and forth among the creatures. Lightning is, is flashing. It's like this electrical, you know, display and to me, the most terrifying part about it is how they move. <laughs> and we actually skip part of this, but they always face forward, whether going, they're just always looking at you, going this way. And um, I kind of picture them coming in slowly, right? They're coming from afar. But that's not what it says. It says, they sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. So just, I mean, just this unpredictable, terrifying, I would think, experience. Uh, in chapter 10... Uh, Ezekiel will call these four living creatures the cherubim, okay? Cherubim is just the Hebrew plural for what? Cherub. So these are cherubs, okay? Let me show you some cherubs. <laughs> A good example of how our modern world has, has tamed <laughs> the wildness of uh, spiritual matters and made them very boring. I mean, these cherubs, they look bored with themselves right here. Um, I mean, how amazing is that? Um, Here's one artist's rendition of Ezekiel. I I hesitate to even put this up, but I'll I'll do it. Um, Here's his take on it. He's trying to get at the fire, the electricity, the four living creatures. Here's a, um, you know, one little uh, close-up on one of them. Sort of a Val Kilmer look a little bit there. Um, now that I see it. Um, but, um, you know, this, uh, what a great example of, of, of how we can tame something that is, is, is so wild and just must have been overwhelming to Ezekiel. And they're not even the main attraction of, of, this, of this, um, this image. Um, in the ancient Near East, in, in Ezekiel's time, it would, it would not be uncommon um, if you were to go into a temple of a local god, okay, in Babylon, or even if you went to the temple in Jerusalem, um, the temple, of course, is, is, is the house of a god, and you, you would have a throne in the architecture, right? there'd actually be a throne where the god would, would be said to, to sit. Uh, and then oftentimes, you'd have these other, you know, angelic creatures 
that were part of the temple architecture. Um, sometimes they're outside, kind of guarding the way to the deity. Sometimes they actually were part of the, the throne itself. They'd be like the pillars that supported the throne of the god. And that's kind of the image you, you have here. Of course, the big difference here is this throne scene with these supportive angels is not a static scene. It's very dynamic and it's very mobile. And we skipped the part about the wheels. Some of you remember there's wheels and these intersecting wheels that help them move. But the, the point seems to be these things can go anywhere they want. They're, they're incredibly mobile. And maybe the idea being that, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not confined to his temple in Jerusalem. Okay, He can show up anywhere at any time, even in the land of exile, even by the Kebar River. And his glory can be displayed there. All right, so with that, let's, let's turn now to the, the climax of this vision of, of actually the vision of God himself. So first, look at uh, verse 22. I'm skipping a bit, obviously. Um, Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. So there's kind of this expanse. There's almost this barrier between these, these creatures, as awesome as, as they are, and, and the one that's above them. Uh, and then uh, verse 26, it jumps into the, the description of, of God. I want to just point out three, three images here. Uh, verse 26, take a look. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. So the first thing they see as they look through this expanse beyond the, or Ezekiel sees, is he sees a throne. And that's always what God's people see, okay? When, God, when, when the heavens are parted, when God gives people visions, they always see a throne. Isaiah sees a throne. John, of course, in Revelation, sees a throne. You always see that. And a throne, of course, a throne means authority. A throne means power. A throne means someone is in control up there. It means the person up there is actually, he's not pacing back and forth, wringing his hands, trying to figure out how to solve the problems of the world, Okay? He's seated, he's seat, sit, sitting, he is seated, he is not anxious, he is firmly in control. Whatever else we might be feeling down here, the one up there, he's in complete control. Which is he is sovereign over all things. And of course, that's what Ezekiel and his companions so needed to hear. I mean, their worlds had been turned completely upside down. Five years now they've been living as slaves in exile, wondering, where, where is God in this? Maybe, maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe God isn't that. Maybe the, the gods of Babylon are more powerful than our Yahweh. And so God shows him and goes, no, I'm in control. I'm not anxious. I'm not trying to figure out what to do in this situation. I am firmly in control of what's happening to you. And, and of course, Many of us in this room need to be reminded of that today. Um, for some of you, um, your life right now does feel out of control. Uh, something has happened that it feels like the rug has been pulled out from under you. And you need to see that throne. You need to hear those words from God. No, no, I'm, I'm firmly in control. I'm not trying to figure out how to solve this. I, I know exactly what I plan to do. So first, a throne. Uh, second, let's look at verse 27. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire. Um, 
fire. I, I noticed there's so much fire in this, in this passage. And I don't know exactly what that's intended to convey, but I know one, one thing about fire is fire is, is incredibly pure, right? It's, it's totally pure. And fire is not just pure, but fire is purifying. That's what fire does. Fire, it can consume things, but can also take metals and, and heat them up and, and purify them, remove the impurities. And I think there's something to be said about that, that, that this God who is coming to Israel, he is coming as a purifier. He's going to come as a refiner's fire. And the truth is that these Israelites, as much as they're in pain right now and despair, they are also still in deep sin. Hundreds of years of deep-seated idolatry, disobedience, um, just neglect of God. And God is coming now as a refiner's fire to purify a people for himself who will be holy as he is holy. And that's going to be a painful experience, but it's going to be an ultimately redemptive and purifying and, and salvific experience for them. And again, I would say, I'm sure there's some of you in this room right now who you would say, I feel like I'm experiencing the purifying work of the Almighty in my life right now. God is taking me through some things, and they are hard. I would not have chosen them for myself, but he is using this to purify me. He's using this to draw my heart to himself. And then finally, look at uh, the last uh, line of verse 27. We talked about the, the throne and the fire, and then says, and brilliant light surrounded him. And I love this, verse 28. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the rainbow around him, or the radiance, excuse me, around him. And I, I think we'd be remiss to not say this. There's something about this image that is of God that is also beautiful. You know, he's not just sovereign. He's not just holy. He's, he's beautiful. He's radiant. He looks in a way that you would, you would you go, oh, that is amazing. And my, my thought is, this, this is just a physical manifestation of his own inner character, of the beauty of his holiness, the beauty of his love, the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his justice, the beauty of his wisdom. Those aren't just characteristics. Those are beautiful characteristics. They're radiant. And to be in his presence is to be in the presence of beauty. But it is what I would call an awful beauty. And I mean that word literally. A beauty that causes you to be full of awe. It's not a, it's not a comforting beauty. It's not like a cozy beauty, if I could say it that way. It's the kind of beauty you experience when you're standing on the edge of, of the Grand Canyon. You know, and you're looking out. Uh, or maybe if you guys have hiked Mount Whitney, some of you have done that. You're, you're at the top of Mount Whitney and you're looking out. It's that kind of beauty. It's the kind of beauty that leaves you breathless, that, that leaves you feeling very small <laughs> about yourself. It's the kind of beauty you will not quickly get bored of. And that's the beauty that Ezekiel experienced. And again, I think they needed to be reminded of that because they were, I'm sure they were angry at God. They were resentful at him. They were wondering, what kind of a God is this? And they needed to be reminded, your God is not just sovereign. He's not just a purifier. He's beautiful. He's radiant. He is, he is your heart's deepest desire. You've just forgotten that. Pretty great image, isn't it? I love how this passage ends. Um, I don't want you to miss this, and then I'm going to wrap this up. 
Uh, Look at the second half of verse 28. He's finished this description, and he says this. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He says, I just saw the glory of the Lord. Actually, he doesn't say that. He says, well, this was the appearance of the glory of the Lord. Actually, he doesn't say that. He says, well, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. All that to say, what I saw, as amazing as it was, is the glory of God twice removed. (laughs) The, the, The uncreated, everlasting God who dwells in unapproachable light, who it dwells in infinite glory, no human being could possibly see that kind of naked, raw, completely unvarnished glory, but I got to see the appearance of the likeness of his glory. And even that causes him, at the end of this verse, when I saw it, I fell face down, which is the only thing any human being would ever do when they saw just the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So there you have it. <laughs> and this is what we're going to spend the next three months looking at this God uh, who is so good, who is, who is not tame, who is not safe, who is wild, uh, but he is good. And I, I want to remind us of something. I think we forget this um, as New Testament Christians. God hasn't changed um, in the last 2,500 years. Um, and I think sometimes as, as Christians, well, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, right? But, but God, somewhere in there, God changed, and the God of the New Testament is a different God. We think somehow the coming of Jesus changed who God is. He used to be you know, wild, now there's this love and acceptance. Um, and what I want to just remind us is the, the coming of Jesus does not fundamentally change who God is. The coming of Jesus explains how sinful human beings like us could possibly have a relationship with that kind of God. <laughs> That's what he does. He, he, he enters us into the miracle that, that you and I could have a relationship with that kind of God. And that kind of wild God can now look at us and say, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I look at you and there is no condemnation. And we could look at that wild God and say, Dad, <laughs> that's my dad. And that wild God, he's for me. And if he is for me, then who on earth could possibly be against me? Because that God is for me. That's what Jesus does. But God is still God. And that's a good thing. So here's my prayer for us. And this is my takeaway. I'm encouraging you to to make this your prayer as we enter into a new year. Um, Moses in Exodus had this really bold prayer. And it was this prayer. He said to God, he said, God, show me your glory. And God did. Well, he showed him the appearance of the likeness of his glory, as you know, you know the story. But that, that is what I want my prayer to be this year. That's what I want us as a church. God, would you show us your glory? It just some, in some fresh way, some some hint of just how great and awesome you are. And wherever you find yourself, some of you, maybe you relate to that, that idea of being bored with God. Like, yeah, it's true. I'm, honestly, God doesn't get me excited. Well, what a great prayer. God, would you show me your glory? Others of you might feel like, God and I are doing great right now. Well, then the prayer is, God, take me even deeper. 
even deeper into just how amazing and marvelous you are. And the goal here is not to try to drum up excitement about God, okay? That does not work. The goal is, God, you have to do something by your spirit. If you don't, it's not going to happen. So that's why we're praying. It's a prayer. Reveal yourself. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And I just wonder what would happen if he did that. I think of those categories I start with. What would happen with, with our worship, if God kind of showed up in a fresh way? What would happen with our purity? What would happen with our sense of mission in the world? God, reveal your glory. And my last, my last thought is this. I think maybe it's easy to pass over this, but almost the whole point of, of chapter one is this. God revealed his glory at the Kabar River. <laughs> Not in the temple in Jerusalem, but he revealed his glory in the land of exile in the place of disappointment, of abandonment. That's where he shows up. And so I just want to remind us that God can reveal himself anywhere. And some of you are in a place of, of disappointment. Some, life has been hard. God can, can reveal himself precisely in those places, or he can do it in, in great places. Um, for some of you, him revealing himself this year might, might mean he, he, he takes you on this wild adventure. Um, for some of us, uh, maybe this year won't be wild. Maybe it'll be incredibly mundane. <laughs> um, but God's glory can be revealed even in the ordinary mundane. Um, I look at my life right now as a 40-year-old with three little girls and a wife. My life has never felt more mundane in all my life. Um, let me give you my life. I wake up. <laughs> uh, or I'm woken up. Uh, I spend about an hour and a half taking care of little girls. Uh, I go to work, you know, eight to five-ish, more or less, do my, write emails, prepare speeches, things like that. Uh, I come home. I take care of three girls for about uh, two and a half hours. Uh, they go to bed, and then I have about an hour of my own time. Um, sometimes my wife and I have a conversation. Sometimes I read a book. Sometimes I watch a show. And then I go to sleep. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's my life. <laughs> That's my life. Incredibly mundane. And maybe that's your life right now. But the beauty is that, that, that God can reveal his glory <laughs> through the changing of diapers, you know, through, through, through you sitting at that desk every day from 9 to 5, from driving kids to school, from taking care of your aging parents, whatever it is, um, God can show up anywhere. And so that's the prayer together. So let's pray that prayer together, and then we'll respond and worship Well, holy God, as we start a new year and as we start this series in Ezekiel, our prayer, it um, feels a little presumptuous even, but the prayer is, would you show us your glory? Give us a fresh vision of who you are, a fresh taste of your, your greatness, your wildness, and your wild pursuit of us. And I pray for each one of us in this room that you know... <laughs> exactly where we need you to reveal yourself. And for many of us, it's not going to be where we're expecting it to come. And maybe even where we would want it to come. But we're going to trust you to lead us in that. We're going to trust you to shepherd our hearts rather than trying to lead our own hearts. We're going to trust you to show up, to reveal yourself, to purify for yourself a people who are passionate for you. So Lord, do that in this 
new year, even as we worship now, may we be reminded of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.